This is KFI Handle here on a Saturday morning, right here till 11 o'clock, uh, every Saturday, followed by Leo Laporte from 11 to 2, and then Neil Saavedra from 2 to 5 with uh, the Fork Report. That's our morning and midday uh, programming here on KFI. This is Handle on the Law, marginal legal advice where I tell you you have absolutely no case. All right, the Montecito mudslides have cost insurance companies more than $421 million in claims. A lot of these homes in Montecito were and are a fortune. Uh, this is where Oprah Winfrey lives. This is where Ellen uh, DeGeneres lives. I mean, this is very high-end property. So you can imagine as these homes were wiped out uh, and businesses were wiped out, it was just a fortune. Now, here is the spin on this. Most homeowners don't have flood flood or mudslide insurance. And insurance commissioner Jones said not to worry because uh, Dave Jones said, while you don't have flood insurance, we don't consider this flood damage because of a flood. We consider the proximate cause of the damage, the fire that the Thomas fire that caused the destruction of all of the ground coverage. So when the rains came, had the ground cover, had the uh, had the, the bushes, the trees that were burned up, had they still been there, you wouldn't have had mud, fl- mud, you wouldn't have these mudslides. So he ruled as insurance commissioner that it, the proximate cause was the fire. And guess what? Everybody has fire insurance. So it's all covered. There are people, a lot of happy campers. I don't have flood insurance. I don't know if I can get flood insurance. Why would I want flood insurance? How many floods do we have? Well, probably Montecito said the same thing. All right, let's go ahead and take some phone calls. Uh, Gina. Hello, Gina. Welcome to Handle on the Law. Hi, um, I have a safety deposit box at my local bank. Once I die, will my heirs listed in my trust have any problems accessing it? How old are you? 74. Oh, you sound older than that, interestingly <laughs> enough. I thought you were about to die today. Uh, will you have any air, uh, any problem with the heirs? Uh, uh, probably not. They show up with a death certificate and uh, maybe the will or the trust, and they're allowed to open it. Someone's allowed to open that. But why don't you just, uh, is there anybody you trust, by the way? Yeah, my son. Then why don't you just have him on the safe deposit box with you, and then it doesn't matter. Well, I was told that he had to belong to the same bank. No, that's a bunch of BS. That's a bunch of BS. You can put his name on the, on the, on your safety box as long as you're paying. doesn't matter as long as you're paying uh, the safe deposit box and you're a customer. Uh, someone's giving you a bunch of crap. Just put his name on it that he has access to it. Access to it doesn't matter if you're dead. Doesn't matter if you're alive. Doesn't matter if you're incapacitated. Nobody cares. He's going to go into the box. He's going to clean out everything that you have of which a son should do: rip off mom and rip off all the other heirs. Uh, that's that's exactly what I did and do. So it works out fine. Just yeah, you have to be a customer of the bank to be a signatory. I guess it's somebody wanting uh, an additional uh, customer in there or, and get some kind of spiff, a bank employee saying, if you bring another customer, you get $25 or whatever. Hello, David. Hello, David. Welcome. David? 
Are you there? All right. George. Hi, Bill. Yes. Uh, my partner and I got married. And well, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Yes. Your partner yes. and you? What's your partner's name? Dave. Yes! <laughs> yeah, thanks, uh, Bill. Well, as the leading up, leading up to uh, us getting married, we wanted to go to Europe. Now, back to more stimulating talk on KFI AM 640. We're going live to the Pentagon for a briefing on the serious strike. And it demanded an immediate response. Yesterday, United States forces, at the direction of President Trump, launched precision strikes against Assad regime targets associated with the use of chemical weapons in Syria. We launched these strikes to cripple Syria's ability to use chemical weapons in the future. We were joined by the United Kingdom and France who demonstrated solidarity in addressing these atrocities. Americans are united in condemning Syria's inexcusable use of chemical weapons, which no civilized nation would tolerate. We are encouraged by the support we received from the senators and congressmen on both sides of the aisle. We are also extremely proud of the United States service members who carried out this operation last night. They demonstrated unwavering courage and commitment in their defense of the American people and the values and ideals our nation represents. This operation was carefully orchestrated and methodically planned to minimize potential collateral damage. I can assure you we took every measure and precaution to strike only what we targeted and what we success and we successfully hit every target. This operation does not represent a change in U.S. policy, nor an attempt to, dispo to depose the Syrian regime. These strikes were a justified, legitimate, and proportionate response to the Syrian regime's continued use of chemical weapons on its own people. We do not seek conflict in Syria, but we cannot allow such grievous violations of international law. Our goal in Syria remains defeating ISIS by, with, and through the 70-nation coalition. But we will not stand by passively while Assad, backed by Russia and Iran, ignores international law. The Assad regime's actions in April 2017 and again on April 7, 2018, show they have abandoned their commitments to the international community and resorted to illegal tactics against the innocent Syrian people. We call upon Russia to honor its commitment to ensure the Assad regime dismantles its chemical weapons program and never uses chemical weapons again. We support our diplomats who are working to set the conditions for the United Nations backed Geneva process to succeed. And we look forward to working with the United Nations envoy to Syria Stefan de Mistura. In an effort to maintain transparency, General McKenzie will now provide a detailed overview of the actual operations. General McKenzie. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dana. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. I'm going to spend the next couple of minutes just talking about the military details of the strikes that we executed last night. And could I get the first graphic up, please? 
Uh, as you've heard uh, from the President of the United States and directly in this room from Secretary Mattis and Chairman Dunford, the United States, the United Kingdom, and France, three of the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council, conducted a proportional, precision, coordinated strike in response to the Syrian regime's continued use of chemical weapons. This combined military strike was directed against three distinct Syrian chemical weapons program targets, and I'm going to show them to you in turn on the monitor behind me, and I think you have access to that information also. The three facilities are, or more appropriately uh, now, were fundamental components of the regime's chemical weapons warfare infrastructure. Let's go to the first slide, please. The Barza Research and Development Center. Next slide. The <coughs> Pardon me. The Hemshinsar Chemical Weapons Storage Facility. And last, and the next slide, please, the Hemshinsar Chemical Weapons Bunker Facility, which is located about seven kilometers from the uh, previous Hemshinsar site. This strike aimed to deliver a clear and ambiguous message to the Syrian regime that their use of chemical weapons against innocent civilians is inexcusable and to deter any future use of chemical weapons. We selected these targets carefully to minimize the risk to innocent civilians. We're still conducting a more detailed damage assessment, but initial indications are that we accomplished our military objectives without material interference from Syria. I'd use three words to describe this operation, precise, overwhelming, and effective. Let's go back to the first Barza slide, please. Against the first target, the Barza Research and Development Center, which is located in the greater Damascus area, we employed 76 missiles. 57 of these were Tomahawk land attack cruise missiles, and 19 were joint air-to-surface standoff missiles, or JASMs. As you can see for yourself from the graphics, uh, initial assessments are that this target was destroyed. This is going to set the Syrian chemical weapons program back for years. And you also note that we've successfully destroyed three buildings in metropolitan Damascus, one of the most heavily defended aerospace areas in the world. Next slide, please. Against the second target, the Hem Shinsar Chemical Weapons Storage Facility, which is located in Syria just west of Homs, 22 weapons were employed, nine U.S. TLAMs, eight Storm Shadow missiles, three naval cruise missiles, and two scalp land attack cruise missiles. So this target was attacked by all coalition forces. Our Tomahawks, the British uh, Storm Shadow, and then the French, French missiles went against it as well. Against the third target, next slide, the Hem Shinsar Chemical Weapons Bunker Facility, we deployed seven scout missiles. Again, the initial assessment is that this bunker facility was successfully hit. I'd now just like to uh, talk a bit about the specific platforms that were part of this strike. And let's go back to the first slide, please. The missiles that I've just described were delivered from British, French, and U.S. air and naval platforms in the Red Sea, the Northern Arabian Gulf, and the Eastern Mediterranean. All weapons hit their targets at very close to the designated time on target of about 4 a.m. in Syria, which, of course, is 9 o'clock here on the East Coast. I'm going to give you a little more details now about the platforms. First, in the Red Sea, the Ticonderoga-class cruiser Monterey fired 30 Tomahawk land attack cruise missiles, and the Arleigh Burke-class destroyer Laboon fired seven Tomahawks. In the North Arabian Gulf, the Burke-class destroyer Higgins fired 23 Tomahawks. In the Eastern Mediterranean, the French frigate Languedoc fired three missiles of their naval version of the SCAT missile. Also in the Mediterranean, the Virginia-class submarine John Warner fired six Tomahawk missiles. 
in the air, two B-1 Lancer bombers fired 19 joint air-to-surface standoff missiles. In addition, our British allies flew a combination of tornadoes and typhoons and launched eight Storm Shadow missiles. Our French allies flew a combination of Rafales and Mirages and launched nine Scout missiles. Taken together, and as you can see from the graphic behind me, these attacks on multiple axes were able to overwhelm the Syrian air defense system. It's also important to note that we flew a variety of defensive counter-air, tanker, and electronic warfare aircraft in support of these operations. None of our aircraft or missiles involved in this operation were successfully engaged by Syrian air defenses, and we have no indication that Russian air defense systems were employed. We are confident that all of our missiles reached their targets. At the end of the strike mission, all our aircraft safely returned to their bases. We assess that over 40 surface-to-air missiles were employed by the Syrian regime. Most of these launches occurred after the last impact of our strike was over. It is likely that the regime shot many of these missiles on a ballistic trajectory. I mean by that, without guidance. And we assess that the defensive efforts of Syria were largely ineffective and clearly increased risk to their own people based on this indiscriminate response. When you shoot iron into the air without guidance, it's going to come down somewhere. By contrast, the precise nature of our strike and the care which our allied team planned and executed significantly reduced the risk of collateral damage to civilians. In summary, in a powerful show of allied unity, we deployed 105 weapons against three targets that will significantly impact the Syrian regime's ability to develop, deploy, and use chemical weapons in the future. It's been said before, but I want to emphasize again, that by comparison, this strike was double the size of the last strike in April 2017, and I'd also emphasize that this strike was a multinational effort. The precision strike was executed with France and the U.K., demonstrating our unquestionable resolve. I'd like to close by noting that since the strike, we have not seen any military response from actors within Syria, and we remain postured to protect our forces and those of the coalition should anything occur. Dana, back to you. So with that, we'll take your questions. Bob. Uh, thank you. Uh, General McKenzie, you said that you assessed initially that the attack uh, cumulatively set back the Syrian chemical weapon program for years. Can you, be, can you elaborate on that? Uh, Ms. White said that it was intended to cripple it. Uh, can you be more specific sure, I think, about that? I, I think well, as of right now, we are not aware of any – I'll answer that part first. As of now, we're not aware of any civilian casualties. Now, we'll, we'll – you know, I would also note, and I, as I said in my prepared remarks, the Syrians shot 40 large missiles into the air last night. Those missiles came down somewhere, and so we should just recognize that's a part of this uh, – that's a part of this equation, too. But we don't – right now, we have no reporting of any civilian casualties against any of the targets that we struck, and we'll continue to look at this closely as we go ahead. So very briefly, the first part of your – This is KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Bill Handel here. Welcome back. And welcome back to Handel on the Law, Marginal Legal Advice. Hello, Kyle. Hey, Kyle. Welcome to Handel on the Law. Hey, Bill. So my question for you is, 
that um, every every morning I wake up and I walk to my car and it's completely covered in water by my neighbor's sprinklers who walk, and the sprinklers go up every morning and I've requested that they turn down the pressure or change the direction of the sprinkler head and they just give me the go they just say yeah okay. yeah 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 all right every so they morning. don't do it so uh, yeah, no. any damage. Yes, yes. So it's beginning to create Ooh. a permanent damage Whoa. on my so he, deposit. So what? What is it going to cost you? And you get to you get to find out what it's going to cost you to repaint the entire car, which is thousands of dollars. And I would send your neighbor an email if you have it, or if not, hand him uh, a letter, or even better, send a registered letter to him. And say, uh, you could stop it right now. I'm getting damage on my car. Uh, you get to pay for repainting my car when I sue you in small claims court. Turn down the you, water. You'd, you'd go as far as to say small claims court? Oh, not, yeah. Not Absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's going to, I mean, uh, what does it cost to paint a car? I mean, do a good professional job. $3,000, $4,000? Yeah, I don't even think my car's worth that much. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's 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 a question of you get to repaint your car. So uh, yeah, I would let them know. Let them know that that's what you're going to hit them with for sure. Uh, hello, David. Welcome to Handle on the Law. Handle, how you doing? Yes, sir. What can I do for you? Okay, uh, quick question. It's an old situation. Um, I was 16 years old, kind of a knucklehead. I was already on probation. Got arrested for three felonies. Uh, Ooh, which, what three felonies? Uh, attempted murder one, attempted murder two, and a gang enhancement to go along with that. Ooh, those are pretty serious. And you were 16, right? Yeah, I was 16. The offense happened when I was 14. Now, I fall under PC 186.2, which is I wasn't the, I, I didn't do it. However, I was associated All right. with a gang. But you were tried, and, uh, you pled guilty uh, as a juvenile, correct? Yes, sir. All right. Well, now, that, sa- that saves your ass. All right. Oh, big time. Yeah. Um, during my 707 hearing, uh, my fitness hearing, basically they wanted to determine if I was fit to stay in juvenile court or if I was going to go to adult court. Um, our lawyer that we paid $10,000 for advised us to take the plea bargain. Now, there was no evidence against me. There was no gun. Yeah, but here's no – but yeah, David, David, here's the problem uh, is – if you're going to go back and say that was bad advice, uh, you've got a, a really hard road to hoe because that is the attorney's that was the attorney's advice based on right. on the way he viewed the case. And even right. if even if another attorney said I wouldn't do it, or in front of a judge, let's say you're suing the attorney and uh, the judge said I wouldn't do it, however. It was competent advice, and in his judgment, you should have pled guilty. You want to know something? You're screwed. Right, and, and I understand that. My question is the advice that he gave us towards the, I guess, the logic as to why we need to sign a plea bargain, that we found out later was false legally. Um, I went through to the uh, law library while I was I did five and a half years in the California Youth Authority. Yeah. And when you know while what, I was in there you, you so what you're saying it wasn't just a judgment call on his part. It was pure malpractice. Oh definitely okay. he, Yeah, no I got it. That, I got it. And you know what? I, I don't know what happens on that because 
uh, you you basically would have to prove that you would have been acquitted. See, that's the that's the hard part. Is okay. uh, if you go to trial, uh, you have to prove that uh, that it would have gone your way, and you don't know that. But David, I certainly you know what I would call an attorney. I would call a malpractice attorney just to see where you okay. stand on that one because. Uh, and I don't know, are there money damages? Maybe spending five years in uh, the juvenile uh, uh, court system, in the jail system, uh, that maybe as a matter of law, you would not have at all. In other words, there is no chance that you would have gone to jail under the circumstances. Then you have a hell of a case. Other than that, I, I think you've got some real issues. But it, I, I got to tell you, I'd make that phone call to a malpractice Definitely. attorney. Go to handleonthelaw.com. Uh, you want to go to malpractice, legal malpractice attorneys, and there's a lot of them out Alrighty. there. All right? Okay. Yep, that's fun. Six, four, 16 years old, right? Felony, attempted murder, and uh, what were the other fun ones? Uh, attempted murder, conspiracy to murder, I, I don't know. Gang yeah, gang enhancement. That's a fun one, too. Uh, yeah. Th- this, this is the crowd I want my kids to uh, hang around with. I, you know what? I'm hoping he's single, and maybe one of my daughters will marry him. This is Handle on the Law. Bill Handel here. This is Handle on the Law. Marginal legal advice. Hello, Erica. You're up. Welcome to... Yes, ma'am. Thanks for taking my call. Okay, really fast. I am the beneficiary, one of six beneficiaries in a living trust or trust. I don't know what it's called. Okay, so from the paperwork I read, it seems you have 120 days to dispute your gig or you sign the nice release form. So what I'm wondering is, does the trust manager guy have to wait for everybody to sign their release forms before he starts distributing the funds? Yeah, pretty much. Now, what okay. what can happen is, uh, and they normally do. However, what they can do if one of the parties refuses or just goes way beyond, uh, if there are six people involved, what he can do is uh, simply divide everything six ways and write five of them out. And then you've got uh, the last beneficiary screaming and contesting you shouldn't have written out the check. But there's something called a clean hands doctrine. You have to come into any kind of a dispute or a case with clean hands. And to argue you shouldn't have distributed, but I wouldn't sign allowing you to distribute. See, that is in violation of the clean hands doctrine. So I don't know where he's going to go. So I think the short answer is, yep, sure can. Okay, one other quick question. There is a specifically disinherited daughter. How yes. How she throw herself into the work? She can. She just files a contest. And, okay. uh, and what ends up happening is uh, it will be dismissed. If she's crazy enough to go to trial, she will. Uh, she's going to have to argue legally that it was a mistake or there was duress when the trustor wrote the trust, that is, whoever put the money in. Uh, it's... There's a, how much money are we talking about, Erica? 
Um, I, I'm like the smallest little person outside all of the drama, so ultimately I don't really know. So you don't know how big a, a deal it is in terms of... Uh... I, I, it's, it's millions, whether it's over... Three million. Okay, million? so uh, if if she is equivalent to everybody else and she's been disinherited, uh, it's fair to argue that she would get hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, is that a pretty good assumption? Uh, if she was able to prevail, but no, no. But I'm saying uh, that's right. If she was able to prevail, she would get hundreds of thousands of dollars. Is that a yes. fair statement? She's she is yes. going to contest the will. She will okay. contest the trust. You bet she will. She'll hire a lawyer. And she'll throw herself in. She will lose. She will lose. And I think uh, it will be attorney's fees will be awarded against her because the estate is going to have to pay for an attorney to represent the estate to fight her, which is why usually there's a settlement of some kind. Because then what happens is the estate, let's say someone uh, is arguing for $500,000, which that person would have gotten. If if had not been disowned, right, disinherited. Well, uh, the estate lawyer says take $100,000 and walk away. That's typically what happens. Okay, and this disinherited daughter would have received all the same paperwork that the beneficiaries received? No, I don't think so. She's just disinherited. She has nothing to do with it. Yeah, I, I mean, I would... Uh, uh, the, the trust, uh, tre- the trustee should send it to her just to say, "Hey, you've been disinherited." Uh, in case she starts screaming and saying, "I want my money," go, "Hey, listen, you're gone. Here's the trust. Ciao, baby." Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Always family going after money. Always, always, always. Vincent. Hello, Vincent. Welcome. Hi, Bill. Good morning. Yes, sir. Um, my question is. Uh, I'm wondering if I could sue my neighbors in small claims court and prevail. Um, I live in a neighborhood here in Southern California. My neighbors own two large macaw-type birds, and uh, they keep them in a big wooden box in the backyard. The birds screech out um, pretty much all day long, and it not only bothers myself, but it bothers the surrounding neighbors, which I have statements from. Um, To be spiteful, my neighbors who own the birds uh, took out a temporary restraining order against myself, uh, made up a few lies in order to get the restraining order. And uh, when we got to court, uh, I hired an attorney to, re- to represent myself uh, so it doesn't turn into a restraining order. Right, uh, and, and, I, assume, and I assume you won that, right? I, I did, sir. All right, and what's your question? And, well, I'm wondering if I could recoup the cost. Yeah, I think so. I'd sue them. I'd sue them. Especially if the argument it was a frivolous restraining order, and they were the one, they were the ones that in fact uh, caused all the problems. What was it? What would they, what did they argue in terms of getting the restraining order? What was the accusation against you? Yes, sir. They, well, there were three big lies. The one that stood out the most was that I took aim at their children three times, which were in the street playing. Take aim and, in uh, terms of with your car. Yes, sir. Oh, right. and so what? And so they wanted a restraining order to keep you off the street. You couldn't drive. Uh, no, they wanted a restraining order for harassment. Oh um, yeah, it's um, yeah. I would sue them. Thank you. And sir. I'd kill the birds. <laughs> that's why no, God. That's why that. God invented pellet guns. You know that. <laughs> I've heard that before. Yep. Though. All right. Thanks. Just thought I'd tell you that, and I'm sure I'm going to get uh, one or two emails from bird lovers all over the place. You know, I get more emails, incidentally, from uh, animal lovers when I say kill, insert name of animal here, because that's the way you can take care of it, than kill your wife.
as opposed to divorcing her because it's just way cheaper to, to uh, murder your wife. All right. You know, I actually had someone complain about that to the state bar for real. You give advice for people to kill their wives. What are you talking about? Well, I heard you say that. Yeah. Do you have any idea what this show is about? It's marginal legal advice. Oh, killing your wife. That may not be so marginal. All right, uh, Victor. Yes. Well, I got a, uh, a problem. I need to know. Uh, we got into an accident uh, a couple of years ago. Um, the guy collected the money finally because it took a long time to settle. Uh, there was three people in the accident. There was someone rear-ended us. And they couldn't settle with the guy in front of me. So finally they settled. The guy collected the money. We find out about it, and now the guy don't want to give us the money. You're talking about the lawyer. You're talking about the lawyer. Yes, the lawyer. Okay. How long has it been since the lawyer? Have you settled the case and the check was issued to the lawyer? How long has that been? I think about six months. Already. Six months. Mm. You want to write the lawyer a letter saying how come you haven't distributed? And he may very well say, "I'm waiting for bills." I'm, uh, uh, what is going on with all this? I have no idea. Are you, are you dialing here? Uh, there was something with my phone. Uh, anyway. Um, you have my, to, uh, and you have to ask the lawyer. Six months is not outrageous. But well, you want. And he said that now he's uh, suing my own. Yeah, okay, you know what? This isn't going to work. Uh, I'm not going to have this beeping going like this. Uh, that's all there is to it. This is Handle on the Law. And uh, welcome back. This is KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Bill Handel here. Uh, pleasure having you here. And this is Handle on the Law. Marginal legal advice. Jody. Hello, Jody. Hi, Bill. I have a question for you about becoming a conservator for my aunt, who's elderly and unable to take care of herself. Okay. So I've done a little bit of research online, and I know that once you become a conservator, you can be paid as such. And yes. I don't care about that. Right. You but can, out of the estate, more, out, out of the more, estate of the conservatee. And so what do you care about? No, well, what I care about is how I get there. Um, I know there's a court proceeding to become a conservator, and does the estate also pay for that? Uh, yes, it should. It should reimburse you for the conservatorship. Yes, it does, and which means you can hire a lawyer. Well, first of all, let me ask you this. How much money is in the estate, Jody? Really no money. She has a partial interest in a house. Okay, so there's no money there. So you can try to do it on your own, and the only thing the court is going to question is... Uh, is she really incapable of taking care of herself? So you can do one of two things. You can have a doctor make that determination. She can agree to you being a conservator. Uh, or, in some cases, uh, the you haul her into court. And the judge gets to look at her, especially if she's drooling and uh, calls uh, the judge Uncle Marty and asks him how he's doing. Then you have a pretty good shot at getting that conservatorship. And what if I can't get her to a doctor? I mean, she's really refusing to do Well, again, like. how do you prove? You have to go in front of a court, and you have to ask a judge to grant the conservatorship, 
And how is the judge going to do that just on your word, Jody? Because once the conservatorship is granted, you have control of all of her uh, all of her assets. Any property she owns, you can sell. Any bank accounts she has, you can sign. And you can sign off and give it to yourself. And if, I mean, it's wide open for tremendous abuse. So there has to be some kind of control, Jody. Right. So... If, what kind of a doctor do you think I could get to go out there to make that observation? You can take her to a doctor. Why don't you take her to a doctor? You know what I would do uh, is I would buy an hour of time from a probate and estate lawyer. Go on my website. Go to handleonthelaw.com and sort of do an email blast. Not sort of. Do an email blast to all of our probate and estate lawyers and say, I talked to Bill. He suggested a consult. How much will you charge me for an initial consult regarding a conservatorship? And then explain there's not a lot of money involved uh, and you really need the advice. So to let them know that it really isn't a prelude to a $400,000 legal fee case. Okay. Try doing that and see what happens. Yeah. Maybe my lawyers will help. I don't know. They're a bunch of sleazeballs, too. But that's not them specifically. All of us. By definition, we all are. If you ever look at a law degree or you look at the license, which they all put on the wall, allowing any one of them or me to practice law, the word sleazeball is somewhere in there. I mean, you have to look carefully. Hello, Dell. Welcome to Handle on the Law. Thank you. I'm calling in reference to a family law issue. Uh, A few years ago, uh, my wife of over a decade and I divorced. I had a child, a son, who is now 12. Uh, She moved from California into another state, has only seen him once or twice, called him infrequently. Um, And usually when she does, she just makes things worse. Now my son is 12. I'm remarried, and I'm wanting to file for full custody. I don't want anything from her. I just want, you know, my son and myself to have a nice, tranquil life. And are you not? Do you not have a tranquil life now? Does uh, Does she come into your life occasionally? She comes in occasionally. She uh, fusses at at our son. Um, they've never had a close relationship, and as I told her, look, you know. You need to, if y'all going to have a relationship, that's between you and him. It's not my job to be your public relations. Right. Person. All right. You know what? And I and I understand, but I'm throwing something at you immediately, Dell. And, and I understand completely where you're going, and I would do exactly the same thing. But uh, if you think that you getting full custody is somehow going to keep her away from your son, even with full custody, she gets visitation which is probably more legally than what she's doing now, which means it's not going to help you at all because no court is going to give you custody and then say, and mom can't visit or mom is no longer involved in this kid in your, in your son's life. So uh, what I'm saying is you could probably get full custody, especially if your son testified and talked about how mom wasn't around and it's much better for uh, your child that you have full custody, which you have anyway, uh, as practo, uh, yeah. practical, de facto. But it just, yeah. does, it just doesn't help you. I see what you're saying. You're at the it's same point. 
So, yeah. you, so you know what? You get to the point where uh, the kid gets older and older and says, Mom, uh, you know, I love you. I don't want you in my life. I have no desire. Yeah. How about this one? Is it now she can come to your house and you can say no. Now, what does she do at that time? She has to go to court and get a court order against you, allowing her to visit your child. Now, that is, I think, a sleazy thing to do because she's still mom. Yeah. Uh, she, um, and she's entitled to visitation. But if she doesn't take advantage of it, how often does she uh, see your son? Uh, the last time she saw him was a few years ago. Oh, jeez. And what do you care? Why do you want? Just, well, why do you want custody? What difference does it make? Well, what I was thinking of was because of the fact when she does infrequently call, they usually get into an argument because he doesn't with want your, to with, with your with your son. Right. So tell him you don't have to talk to her. Just say you know, you know what I don't I don't want to deal with it. He's getting old enough to say to mom, you know what I don't want to talk to you, mom. She can't stick yeah. a gun to her head. She can't. She can't go to court, and the court's going to order your son to talk to her. How about that one? Instead of you spending thousands of dollars with a lawyer and getting full custody that means nothing, you turn to your son and go, "Hey, why don't you not talk to your mom? What do you think? You're done." I just yeah. saved. I just saved you thousands of dollars, my man. I'll send you a bill. Okay. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, you just have to get practical. I love practical, don't you? All right. This is Handle on the Law.